Welcome to E-Commerce Matters, brought to you by Black Curve. Black Curve helps e-commerce businesses make pricing decisions. Today, we're covering the topic, how to price like Amazon. As normal, I'm joined by my glamorous sidekick, Dr. Rob Horton. Uh, he's the brains behind the operation. I'm the jazz hand. And, uh, and we're gonna, as I said, we're going to look at how to price like Amazon. So full disclosure before we begin. Um, I certainly have never worked at Amazon. Rob, have you ever worked at Amazon? Did you leave that out of your CV when you applied? <laughs> no, no, I've never. I bought a lot from Amazon. Yeah, so probably we both know a hell of a lot about it because we've, we've probably given them far too much of our hard-earned cash over the years. That's, uh, that's certainly the angle, the angle that we're coming from. Uh, but don't worry, we have done our research. Uh, if Amazon's listening, don't worry, we haven't put any spies at, uh, spies at bay. Um, we've, we've done our research and are using our, um, our experience from our customers selling on Amazon and, uh, and all the research that we've done to, to bring you our understanding of how, of how Amazon prices. Now, I think um, before, we, before we, we've done the disclosure, so uh, there's probably a bit more of a, a, a sort of um, statement that we should say. I fully ag agree and accept that not everyone likes how Amazon does business, okay? Uh, even talking to uh, my father-in-law, he actively on the golf course encourages well, everyone he plays with, don't shop at Amazon. Uh, I think he's got a bit of a, a bit of a bee in his bonnet, a bee in his bonnet about that. Um, now, whether or not you like their business practices, or whether or not you dislike their business practices, what we can hopefully agree on is that they have done fundamentally brilliantly well from an economic and a financial standpoint. Okay, I don't, I don't think I think Jeff Bezos is currently. Um, the richest person in the world. I think he's a cento, is it centi or cento billionaire or what? Is it 100 billion? What's, yeah, uh, yeah. What, what's that? So, so really, we're not here to, to say whether or not we should shop on Amazon, whether or not you should like them or dislike them. Okay, really what today is about is hopefully give you an insight into some of the pricing techniques that Amazon uses um, and explore those and, and then potentially you can adopt some of those pricing techniques in your own organization to hey a billion would be nice wouldn't it we don't need we don't need a hundred billion a billion would be nice or maybe 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 a hundred million we'll, we'll we'll call it we'll call yeah, it we'll call I mean, it even there take shall 10. We? <laughs> <laughs> So, so hopefully that's sort of set the scene, and we've put um, we put the kind of caveats in place, and and uh, and what 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 we're about today. So I thought what we might start with is look at uh, is set the scene a bit a bit further um, in terms of to give to give a feel for for why we think Amazon um, is actually very powerful and progressive from a pricing perspective. So um, I have gone to the Daily Mail, so forgive me. Uh, for that, for that, Rob. Unless you are a Daily Mail reader, in which case, forgive me for, for assuming that assuming that you're not. Uh, are you a Daily Mail reader, Rob? I think the T-shirt probably says I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> the long hair, uh, <laughs> the long hair, and the tie-dye T-shirt yeah, that, yeah. uh, that, that gives it gives it away. Um, and so, so they've, there's an article here. It's about um, how Amazon changes prices. Uh, upwards of 300 times a day they've, they've, they've quoted here. And there's two examples that I wanted to pull out. The first of which um, was a paddle board. And, it's, and it references and it says, over the course of a year, uh, it could be bought for as little as £234.87. 
and uh, and as much as six hundred and ninety nine pounds. That's a difference of four hundred and sixty four pounds and thirteen pence, if we're to be exact. Now that's a that's a that's a pretty pretty wide change and variation in price. If, if you don't if you don't agree, um, it is. If you don't agree, uh, because I, I certainly feel it is a is a wide swing in swing in price. Um, They've got. A, they also quote a Jamie Oliver stainless steel induction saucepan. Have you got one of those, Rob? No, I don't have an induction hob. I found out that then the other day <laughs> that you need special pans, and I've just got gas in London. <laughs> you can get induction in in London, though. By the way, so I, no, I not, had. I, not uh, in I, my rented flat where I'm not paying. No, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And again, this podcast is not to not to challenge which is the best type of cooking uh, cooking equipment. But, but what we can say is this if particular product. If anyone wants a cooking podcast, though, happily, happy to come on. You're you're volunteer for that. Uh, maybe we'll, we'll do that as the next episode, shall we? Uh, I might have to bow out at that point because <laughs> that's where my knowledge my knowledge ends. Um, and this particular saucepan had changed price fifty one times between first going on sale in sort of November time up to August. Uh, changes 51 times between that that period so kind of eight nine months and it went from uh, as much as 44 pounds all the way down to 18 pounds and 27 pence okay now amazon has been beaten up quite a lot around um around surge pricing and and it's certainly in the, the analysis that we're doing they're certainly not having as much deep discounts in the blink of an eye you know you would certainly never see it go from 464 pounds one day this paddleboard to 234 pounds the other day because as we've mentioned in other podcasts customers and consumers massively don't want to take advantage be taken advantage of so uh, so certainly from a an e-commerce perspective and um, the retailer where you're selling physical products surge surge pricing as a technique is is generally recommended to, to be a, to be avoided um, but, but but we can see that they are changing prices changing prices very regularly and if we look at business insider also uh, they're quoted as saying Amazon changes prices on its products about every 10 minutes so you know it's kind of right you wanted to buy that what, what was the last thing you bought on Amazon Rob roof rack a roof rack oh cool is this for the it's just for the polo is it yeah it's for my week off so I need to put the surfboard on it. <laughs> oh, nice, nice, nice. Uh, well, I, I will, I will, I will, I won't geek out on this topic as well. I think everyone's had my geeking out on on oh, outside. No, yeah, uh, the, the problem is I bought. Um, I had to. There's another conversation here on like fulfillment and Prime and, and, and the rest of it, which I think is really interesting because I, I found myself. I ended up buying the cheap foam one that you throw over the top rather than the expensive fitted one because I could get it in two days and it's roughly fine and then I'll get more expensive. Uh, well you see I'm the muggins who's gone all in on fuel products. Other products are available but I've gone like oh, what I, know, I, I, think, I think you're correct but I didn't give myself enough time <laughs> to <laughs> The man going surfing on Saturday, he nothing's gonna stop him, whether it be fuel or foam he's going. Yeah basically yeah. <laughs> um so uh so Right, we, I think we've, I hope we've set the scene. Um, we've kind of introduced uh, Amazon. Those of you who have been napping, they are a major online uh, marketplace for products. They sell their own products as well as um, as well as allow retailers to sell through them. 
So how do they sell? Where do they start? What's the kind well, of starting I think, point? I think what's really interesting actually is that for, for Amazon, one pricing is one piece of something I think Amazon do really well in general, and that is data-driven decision-making. So I think part of the reason Amazon has been so successful is that they've captured a market and, ca and then managed to leverage these data sets cross-functionally um, uh, and, and building the infrastructure to do that. And I think the fact that, the, I mean, obviously pricing of products in their marketplace is water, but that, but that is symptomatic of the kind of really impressive tech infrastructure they built out around them. Um, I think that, so it, do, it doesn't surprise me. The, the examples are really interesting. The paddleboard one I can understand because it's a heavily seasonal product, right? And if you say you have limited stock in a warehouse, that's a supply demand equation. I, I imagine, well, I surf in the middle of winter, but I don't think many other people, I don't see many other people out there. Um, so, but in the summer, inflatable paddleboard, off you go. So I can, I can see, I can see that massive change in demand. Um, the saucepan is baffling. I'd like to know whether the, it, it came back up, whether it was cyclical or whether it just went down. Um, because it could just be a lot of initial churn in the price. But um, I think realistically what it is, is that uh, Amazon wins on average, right? They treat pricing like they treat everything else. And it's, it's an algorithmic problem. It's a big data problem. And so you put in all these data sets and then you're going to get some weird behavior. But as long as you're consistently winning on average, happy days, right? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that very much so. And I think uh, uh, Jeff, we'll call him Jeff because we're, we're clearly best buddies with him, best buddies with him now. Um, you know, he regularly says his whole entire business operation, sometimes actually to the detriment, you know, he's had, he's had real issues with certainly how he's treated employees and, and so forth. And we're not going to get into that in today's podcast, but everything he does is based on data and analysis of the data. Okay, and, and absolutely, there's a time and a place for you to actually suddenly step back and go, hang on a minute, there's other things at play. But very much so across his whole business, most of the decisions are based on what is the data telling me and how am I analysing that and then making, and, and, making decisions. And from what I know anecdotally, it's really deep within the business in terms of the culture of feedback is built around it and how people, and how people give feedback and how people kind of give props to each other and all the rest of it. So it's... It, that that understanding of data is, is really at the root core. If you were to do my job product at Amazon, you'd best be a data person, right? Because I mean, as we're not going to have this conversation, but the uh, design on Amazon's website is not my favourite piece of design <laughs> in the, in the <laughs> But the product is excellent in terms of what it does, and it, and actually, there's an argument that the little edges are there to train you to use their product and keep you in their product, and all the rest of it. So. Yeah, I think I think part of the reason they're so good at pricing, um, and this, this kind of is a broader conversation in e-com as well, is that like is using data and using data effectively cross-functionally, and then almost being good at pricing is symptomatic of of this data culture that you have within the business. So we mentioned data. What's the first bit of data that that they would be using to support them with a the pricing decision 
Well, they're really lucky, right? And this is where we get into kind of interesting territory that we're not going to get into in this podcast because they kind of own and operate in the market, which is um, kind of awful, actually, and probably why a lot of merchants and people we talk to don't like them at all. I don't think it's fair, personally. Um, and that means that they know that for each of their competitors, um, what they're selling. Um, and so that's kind of that. They know where their competitors have set the price. Um, they also know where what they're selling, so they've got their sales data. They also know how much their competitors are selling, actually, if they're operating on Amazon. And that's where it, that, that is the line, I think, that becomes anti-competitive. I'm completely honest, because you don't, if you're operating in Amazon, you kind of have a rough idea of volumes, but you don't know exactly what everyone else is doing that they do. And I doubt they Chinese wall it. If someone at Amazon wants to correct me, thumbs up, fair enough. So really, it's like, it's no different from what we'd suggest to anyone in working in Amazon or working outside of Amazon. You need your competitor data. You want to understand your marketplace. You need your sales. You need your stock levels. Um, and then lots of things. They'll have conversion rate, click-through, uh, web traffic, search history, blah, 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 all these other sources. So before we before we you know we feel like we've 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 gone from naught to 100 miles an hour very quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's, let's let's break those down a bit. So um, so the first one you touched upon there was competitor data. Okay. So you know where can where where what are the options out there for an e-commerce company who wants to go and collect competitor data? Well, it's interesting because it is a grey market in that like um, all the prices of all your competitors selling online are freely available online and it's published information. Um, and it's worth noting that actually there was a, a case in the US brought by LinkedIn, I think some company called IQ or something had scraped them and were just basically reselling uh, LinkedIn data. And it was found that because it was publicly available, it's fine. So um, it's less grey than it, than it was actually, which is quite nice. Really, you can work with a provider. We do it. Lots of other people do it. It's quite a common thing. And we will just algorithmically scrape prices for you and other bits of information that you may want, such as whether it's in stock or whether uh, things are refurbished or secondhand because you might want to exclude those kind of products or where you are in your Google search rankings. Um, and that tends to be that tends to be through an Amazon or Google shopping route because building you basically have to come up with like automate the human process of going to a website so if it's google shopping it's easy because i search for the product um and then there's a question of how you do that but we won't get into that now but you search for the product and you come back with a list of prices great thing about google shopping or amazon is you get like all the competitors all the people selling there and their prices in one shot where it gets tricky is if you say, well, I want to search at this person's website over here and this person's website over here, because each one of those is kind of a distinct piece of software that needs being built. So most people will just do uh, that kind of straight down the middle automated route, hit Google Shopping or Amazon or whatever. And actually, I think if you think of it from a buyer journey, that's how most people shop anyway now. I certainly do. I, I know you've got a few pet websites, but if it's not an area you know, <laughs> Say we're not doing like cycling or whatever, but if it's uh, say I just want to buy a roof rack, I don't have any brand loyalty to roof rack, 
selling companies. I'm just going to say you don't. You don't have a brand loyalty for roof racks. Well, you haven't I lived, just, mate. Honestly, well, I, so. well, I just got a car, so I think I'm not. I'm not early enough. I'm too early in the market. Maybe, uh, maybe a couple <laughs> of roof racks in, I'll start developing one. But, um, but yeah, the normal the normal bio journey for me nowadays really is to either just go on Amazon or Google shopping and probably predominantly Amazon to be honest and, and search and then see what comes up. And that's really what you try to mimic when you're scraping. It's, it's that behaviour and aggregating those prices. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's from a from an e-commerce company's perspective. It's a you know if you if you get data from a marketplace like Google Shopping or Amazon, you know, it's a one to many, isn't it? Because you just you 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 search one place and you get very quickly a spread of the market. Whereas if you're going to each individual competitor, you've got to set up an individual scrape and that website might look different from the next website and the next website. And you can very quickly get into spending thousands, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds on that kind of technology. Whereas if you're scraping a marketplace, you know, it's a very much more of a repeatable, repeatable mechanism. Now, today we won't go into the pros and cons necessarily of doing one over the other, no, but, but it, you do it, get more bang for your buck on one Sorry, just to jump in, it is worth saying that actually the broad marketplace data is very cheap. It's hundreds of pounds, if that, like depending on what you want to do with it and the quality of it. So actually in terms of the business expenses, it's, it's, it's pretty minimal. Um, and that's some pretty powerful data to just, to just get. Uh, I think that's really worth flagging because I think often people think it is more if if you've come from a bespoke world, um, which if you go to someone and or you hire a developer to build a scrape for you, that's going to be let me think two days of work for a site or something at a developer's day rate. So you're getting into thousand pounds fairly easily, where you can just go and buy some data. And there, there is a whole. I mean, it's a very competitive marketplace. There's a whole number of people out there doing it, so it's well worth doing. Just People will give you a trial as well. So even if you want to go and find out, we'll give you a trial, right? So um, yeah, if you go to blackcurve.com, you can certainly uh, <laughs> certainly get uh, get Google Shopping data and, and other marketplace data for, from ourselves. So okay, so you've you've got competitor data. Uh, you're, you're you've got visibility. You've got some sense of the marketplace. If we look at if we look at come back to Amazon for example, presumably they're making competitor-led decisions sometimes, right? And sometimes they're not. So what do you need to implement those decisions? So I would guess actually that Amazon aren't quite doing that. I would think they're probably using them as benchmarks rather than actually making price-led decisions because what what's the, it's just to stay on the data before we go to the execution bit. I think yeah. because they have so much market and sales volume data, they are able to do big, robust price elasticity calculations over over a range of price that way, and then make sure use the competitive data as kind of uh, boundaries to make sure they don't trip over it. Um, They're as mature as you possibly could be on the pricing maturity uh, model. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, I mean, it's fair to say, but competitive data is, I, I think, um, they're they're not just using competitor data in isolation right That's it's, it's one yeah, yeah. part of yeah. the, the decision piece okay um but but it is a starting point right so what in order, in order for them in order for them to implement the, the, the presumably they're not using a spreadsheet to manage this okay maybe it's their new fancy aws spreadsheet technology they've just released <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, no, no, I get it. I get it. I, get it. it may, I mean, it's just interesting. Like, so you've got all this data. What do you do with it? Well, I think you've hinted at it there. If you've got, I don't even know how many SKUs are on Amazon, but millions and millions of SKUs. They're not doing much. There's not, there's not four people in a room doing that by hand. Is it? Um, so, and it's actually a very, if you take the data approach and if you care about winning on average, um, it's it's very it's a very easily automate easily quote unquote but you can buy software that will easily automate the process for you uh, if you have an idea of your business logic that you want to apply and the boundaries that you set and all the rest of it um, you can in effect buy an automatic engine that will feed in the data and then based on whether how much money you want to make uh, what's your minimum amount of money you want to make or risk averse you are whether you use your competitors um how much risk you want to take on uh we'll set the optimum price in the marketplace for you because it's not just crawling up and down a supply demand curve because there are business constraints that cut regions of that off right in the uh actually the correct quote unquote price in the market may not be the right price for your business um so and and all of that can be handled automatically so we call that We've got a pricing engine at Black Curve. There are lots of others out there. And what we do is we take all these data feeds and it's just a, use the term, it's a sausage grinder, right? You, you pull the data in and then it gives you a price at the other side, but, it, but it's configurable based on what you want to do. And that is super easy to get going with, super easy to set up, whether it's us or someone else. At that level, it's not actually hard. And Amazon will have a more complicated version. I don't know whether more complicated than us, Probably knowing how scope creep in large <laughs> corporates, <laughs> um, because they'll have, I mean, their the, the volume of data will be much larger than what we're used to dealing with, like orders of magnitude, and it will have to pass other robustness tests, scalability tests that we wouldn't, in terms of um, speed of response and, and all the rest of it. But realistically, it's probably a few core lines of pricing algorithms on the same data, but with a for a lot of engineering <laughs> <laughs> not a shit ton of engineering i think no, that's what i was gonna say, say. <laughs> <laughs> um so so i think that, that that's that's great and I, I mean it's certainly amazon are a hell of a lot advanced in the pricing maturity curves we've touched upon that they're using multiple data sets but you know there's certain products which not your jamie oliver saucepans and not not your paddle boards there are certainly products that aren't sexy that are bread and butter and i think we've, we've touched upon it a number of times that that are you know you you've got to be within a certain certain boundary of uh of price or otherwise people will go elsewhere right? i mean amazon probably has quite a quite a heavy influence on what that boundary would be right just surely because of the volume yeah going i out, think that's but. the curious thing because actually you can get you can't we spoke about this before but you can get away with just using competitor data in that regard because say your competitor is Amazon and they're doing this stuff and you're just tracking them. Well, you'll be, you'll be piggybacking on their insight, right? The issue is you run the risk that their insight's nonsense, um, which when you start getting significant... Paddleboard, paddleboard makes sense, like intuitively. There might be something in a Jamie Oliver saucepan, it might have just been a surge price based off a very good marketing campaign or something everyone loved. I just, how many people do you know with induction hops? 
You're hanging out in the wrong circles, Rob. That's all I'm saying. No, induction I, I, pods for the future. So I, won't, I won't name names, but a friend of mine showed me his induction pods and he just bought a very expensive flat. So I'm, I'm not hanging out with the right people because it's not my usual social circle. So even on our previous podcast, we, we touched upon it that, um, that actually you know, pre-COVID, during COVID, and as we're seeing outside of COVID, where there is a competitor match, you know, you're in a tight, you're in a period where actually 50% of the time, plus or minus, you do need to be within some form of actually, competitive parity. That's a, that's a really good point. That is a period where I could see something like hands going through the roof. Is a COVID-like period. It's, it's amazing how quickly you forget about it. But suddenly, I mean, I've cooked, I know I said I've volunteered for a cooking podcast, but I've, I've really got into cooking during, during this. I've spent significant amount of money on kind of equipment and all the rest of it and there's been supply chain issues there's been stock level issues and so why not make the margin it's not for people don't like price changes i get that but also it's it's not an essential is it i mean it's 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 it's, it's kind of like it's not like you're charging 100x on hand sanitizer um so i i don't know I think, I think so it's, there are other saucepans available, right? It's not like if, if you if you increase the price of all saucepans, you might be take, you might be said to be taking advantage of your customer, okay? But if you've if you've spotted a particular niche and you you actually spot an increase in demand, why shouldn't you make sure it's win win, like without taking advantage of the customer? Yeah, for sure. And I just I also think that like uh, I think it's about what's a fair price at the time interestingly I d i'm not sure how many people look historically uh at prices and i think people are quite good at contextualizing stuff right so if i um we keep uh, <laughs> our anecdotes of things we bought in lockdown right but we bought some sun lounges and they're more expensive than they would normally but we're stuck in the, the value we associate with them is higher than we would normally right so and they still weren't that expensive but they're probably 15 20 quid more than they normally have well which is probably a 30 percent increase in price but we couldn't leave the house for two months so all right fair enough you've got stock issues we need some sun lounges Here here's our credit card <laughs> yeah, off, off exactly. we go isn't it <laughs> um and and also i think um the reason that that i, I sort of stress that that amazon don't are not using a spreadsheet to manage their manage their <laughs> pricing as well to, to kind of to kind of bring it back is We've spoken about previously the concept of striving towards market efficiency, and certainly, yeah, okay, fine. We're not, we're not. Today's podcast is not to to, to be uh, to take you through the econ economist's uh, buzzwords 101. But what we're trying to, what we've seen is that those businesses that have changed their price more frequently than others, okay, because they've had automated automated tools in place to do so, they're actually doing a lot better. Than, mm -hmm. than other, to borrow an, another term, digital dawdlers, because they're constantly pushing, asking the market, is this the right price? Getting a response, updating it, asking the market again, updating it. And they're pushing for that perfection. Perfection doesn't exist. Again, this is not a philosophical discussion, but, but they're constantly pushing the boundaries and a pricing tool enables you to do that. Yeah, and we see that, right? In the, we've talked about this before, I think, but 
when you add a new product, when people start working with us, we see a lot of product price changes initially, and then it settles down. And that is because markets, well, I used to say the markets don't change that frequently. It seems like they do change quite frequently at the minute. But um, if you're, you, you take a bit of time to get used to it, and then when you're there, actually the market doesn't change that much. There's also kind of a wasted, one of the great benefits of automating is it's sitting there doing it for you and it knows when to adjust and when to check and when to look and you don't have to because otherwise you'd probably be spending a lot of time being like do i need to do anything no do i need to do anything no do i need to do anything oh why me and then he'd have missed it by two days um this is probably this is more true for kind of like fmcg kind of high volume highly competitive products if you've got a few key lines that um that are really kind of sensitive in, in some way or that you really understand and um or automating those will probably work relatively well but may not work as well as if you were doing it otherwise but that's it's hard to know uh it's the um the analogy i often use is kind of the robo investing uh quant, quant side of it which i come from versus stock picking and so the again like if you're building a an automated portfolio you you bet you make hundreds of thousands or thousands of small bets rather than a few very big bets right and, it, and it's the same thing if you're a humans are really good at focusing in on and really understanding how a few things behave so if you sell seven products you don't need an automatic tool right you might need you probably need the competitive data interestingly and you might need something to plumb it all together and you might need the insight you probably don't need something to manage the actual process of it automatically um, whereas if you've got thousands and thousands of products, you're probably losing so much in efficiency on on the 900 or the 90% of it that you're not looking at, just um, that it's just worth plugging in. And, and invariably, certainly what we see that a lot of the initial gains are in your long tail, yeah. okay? Because you haven't you haven't had enough time to focus on those. I mean, let, let, let's put it. Let's put it another way. If you if you increase the price of one of your high-performing products, you only benefit on the delta between your old price and the new price, don't you? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're not selling some of your long tail and suddenly you make a pricing decision and manage to sell it, you're going you're you're bagging the whole sale from naught to whatever the the price point is. So so that that's what that's what automation allows you to get. So I I, I love that point, and I feel like we get in trouble for this a lot. Uh, because I, <laughs> we never I, get in trouble, surely. <laughs> no, but it's quite contrarian, and, and I think it's like it, it goes against how people want to run their business fairly, obviously. But price increases are often significantly worse than price decreases, or, or like I much prefer price decreases because price decreases have lower risk and much higher upside. Um, because if I and the reason is this correlation between price and volume, in that because the holy grail in pricing always seemed to me for people is that oh if I can just increase and I can get a bit more margin I can get a bit more margin and maintain if I can maintain volume that'd be fantastic. Fine fit at the product level, not fine at the gross level, right? Like um, because the benefit of dropping a price is that suddenly you might massively spike the volume. Right, and it's lower risk because if I increase the price, 
I'm price testing. If I don't have enough data, this is if I don't have enough data to robust price elasticity. I can drop off a cliff, right? I can suddenly trip over a competitor that I'm unaware of, or just the or a kind of a cannibalistic product or whatever, and suddenly no one wants to buy anymore. So I've gone from selling 100 units a week to zero units a week just through a, a small pricing. Whereas if you go down, uh, price to, you, you know the price didn't do that, right? Price, the other demand factors maybe, but it's unlikely that people aren't going to buy something because it's a little bit cheap. Um, and I think that's a really counterintuitive point almost for, for a lot of people because you think about margin sacrifice at the individual product level. And, and I think it goes back to what did Amazon do really well. And I think that paddleboard is a really interesting example because of the way they're, because their supply chain is so efficient. That's another like thing that they're very, I think I could go on a two hour run about supply chains in the fishing industry, but I, I, I won't. It's been really frustrating for my holiday. But um, what that allows them to do is they can make the decision actually because they can keep the stock in or they can obtain it whenever they, they need to. They can sell it any time of the year, right? Uh, for a lot of people we talk to, the issue with seasonality and the reason they don't want to decrease price is because they feel like they're losing uh, they're losing out on a sale at another time. It's a, I think it's actually a, it's kind of a symptomatic lost sales fallacy because I don't think it's true. I kind of feel that like if you can sell something and replenish it and make margin on it, you probably should be doing that. But that, that's another debate. But, but what Amazon are doing with that huge swing in the paddleboard is selling paddleboards in winter, right? In that, okay, uh, we'll catch those few smart people because they have the warehouse and infrastructure, the rest of it, but then kind of keep it in store. They think, oh, I want a paddleboard for next summer. I'll get one now. And it's a third, third of the price. But then they also catch the upsets in the summer, and because they can replenish their stock levels, it kind of doesn't matter. To them, if that makes sense. So you can. Yeah, so I'll expect that oddly shaped present under my Christmas tree from yourself, shall I? Uh, as, as I have a giant paddleboard. Well, they're inflatable, aren't they? These days? They're inflatable. <laughs> yeah, they pack out. I didn't realise they're actually really cool. Uh, if I move back to Guildford, I'll get one to go down the canal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, so we've spoken about. You've got to get competitive data. We've spoken about um, you've got to put a pricing tool in place to enable you to automate the decisions. Now, I'm very passionate about making sure that, that you don't blindly follow competitors for the sake of doing it. It's one of the reasons that I, that I founded Backcub in the first place. And then also we've spoken about, you know, very quickly you we went from naught to 100 miles an hour and, and, and spoke about the fact that Amazon are extremely clever at their pricing. And so it, competitive data is not, is not all they're looking at. Take us through um, some of the data sets that, you know, one at a time um, that they're also using to support that, those, the algorithms that go into their, their pricing decision uh, process. Yeah, well, I don't, I have to caveat this because I don't know for sure, right? But, and again, anecdotally from research I've done, it's, it's not dissimilar to what we talk about. You've got your core ones, right? You've got your marketplace data, so that's, Competitor, competitive pricing, competitive behavior, you've got sales of the products, and they have that aggregated at marketplace level, which seems, again, seems anti competitive. And then they've got all their site traffic data because they control the portal. So they've got things like basket conversion, um, 
they've got things like search terms, like all, all this stuff, and all of this will layer in. And you can go on, and they actually bubble some of this up. So they've got a trending kind of top sellers kind of page that they surface in different categories. So you can go in that and look at that. Um, and if they're surfacing that up, you know, you know they're using it. The other thing I will add, and I think that you, you mentioned it in passing, I don't know if you meant it or not, but they're looking at it, right? Um, because Amazon has a really cool, I mentioned at the start, a really cool infrastructure. It's all APIs, it's all microservices, they all, sorry if I'm going too technical, but basically it's all all hooked up and it all talks to each other and you could you can build a dashboard and say, I want to hit this data from this point, this from this point. And this lets you kind of intuit and sanity check because I would, again, okay, you, I don't think you should follow prices blindly, but I think you should be checking data, big data things go wrong, you can still fix it, you can make it better. It's not a set and forget, right? Uh, I think people often think that with kind of pricing. I've got some prices myself, my pricing engine, and I'll, I'll leave it. But your business is different from the other person's business and the marketplace changes. So you need to be kind of interrogating the data, all these data sets. Um, and the more you can learn, the more insight you can get, I think. And then by interrogating them, you can tune your strategy. You can uncover things that, oh, I'm converting here. Where am I converting here? Well, I, I put a load of marketing spend. I haven't had to drop the price to match competitors. People are buying because that advertising strategy works great. So I can I can take that out by converting pricing strategy. Uh, conversely, um, I'm not selling any of this. I'm priced competitively in the marketplace. I've spent a lot of advertising money on it. So there's clearly no demand for it. So I should stop investing in this product because it doesn't matter whether I spend or not. It doesn't matter if I change my price or not. I'm still not moving the dial on the sales. Um, and this is why interrogating the data becomes so important top of the obtaining and just automating using kind of the, the next piece because it 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 builds the flywheel it helps you improve it yeah and i think it and, and just to just to add to that um if you've got your pricing tool in place your pricing tool is making decisions on a mass scale right so it's it, it's rapidly making lots of decisions and if you have a good one what it should also then be doing is raising to you the exceptions the We've got crap data here, or uh, we're missing a data point here, or um, or for some reason this is an anomaly. This doesn't normally happen. Go and investigate it because pricing touches so many other areas. You've got to make sure that that, that you're managing those exceptions because otherwise, then it will be making bad decisions. So it, it's got you've got to have that 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 yeah, tool which enables you to manage the that. Tool, the tool assumes good data, right? It's garbage in, garbage out, and I I am sure that one of the things. Amazon have done is invest a lot of money in data processing, pre-processing, so that they know that the before data point is used in any decision, the quality of it is super high. And the really nice thing about that, from a business perspective, why I think it's possibly really worth investing in, is the same data sources you use everywhere. Like the same price, pricing hat does have a particularly high bar for data quality, but the same data that you'll be using for your C decisions or uh, really just accounting and auditing, right, is, um, or product sourcing, market insight, marketing, whatever, uh, is the same data you use for pricing. And the cleaner that, that data is, and the, the better process the data is, the more you'll get out of it. Um, 
because, for example, I've done a whole podcast on it, competitive data can be really, really bad. It can be really messy, and it does require a significant amount of meaning often and knowledge about it before it can be used because um, you get get a whole host of nonsense. You get second-hand products, you get eBay, you get all, all kinds of things that Google Shopping can't tell apart. You get Google Shopping trying to be helpful and suggest things to you that isn't a like-for-like match for your products. So you're not comparing apples with apples. Um, so I think part of building this, yes, you get your data and yes, you get your engine. There's this really important middle piece, which is cleaning and curation of that data to make it usable. Yeah, and also, I mean, so you assuming that you've assuming you've you've got the, the process in place, assuming you've got the tool in place to support you with that cleansing, you're then moving on to the actual fundamental pricing decisions themselves. And I think it, it might be worth saying that you know we 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 use the term sales history a lot. I think it's uh, we should probably have a bit of a swear jar every time every time we mention it because anybody outside of Black Curve is probably going, what are they wanging on about? They keep talking about sales history. But what, what we mean by that is the data set of your individual transaction at checkout. So that paddleboard was purchased on Tuesday on the, what are we, the, the, the 7th of July uh, at this, this date. So we the 7th of July, goodness me, I should know. We are, hooray. Hey, I got, lock, got a down. I have no idea, like absolutely no idea. <laughs> so with it, you know, that, and it was purchased for 300 pounds. Okay, and then you—that's what we mean by sales history. It's building up those individual traction transactions. On the, on the eighth, it was bought for three hundred and two pounds. On the ninth, it was bought for three hundred and four pounds. As the volume picks up, you 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 pull all that data in, and this is what fundamentally enables you to dovetail this data set with your competitor data. I mean, and to the, give you to give you a sorry, I was just going to jump in on that because I, I yeah, we said we talked about this at the start, but we haven't. Part of the reason they're making so many price changes is to build out that data set, right? Bingo. They are rapidly price testing on a mass scale. And it's and, and as much as you know on the Daily Mail might say, well, they've had huge swings in price, what they're doing is they're they 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 put their foot the, the algorithm's put its foot slightly on the accelerator, okay, and it's nudged the price and it's assessing has that it changed my volume? up or down and then if it if it's gone up or down we keep they keep going keep going they're working out and it's doing that on a mass scale and constantly the, pushing what, pulling pushing pulling what some smart cookie at amazon has done it would have bucketed cookware products and found a representative cookware product right which is your your jamie oliver sauce pan and then they've said we're going to take the margin hit on this to understand the, the pricing dynamics of this as a whole and they sell it over a wide range right and then they build they build that and from that they can extrapolate to cookware because one source ban is much like any other source ban. It doesn't matter. It's, I mean, that's not true at all. But like, <laughs> I thought you said you're an expert, Robert. <laughs> no, I've got to rephrase this in the correct way. When you're clustering products, one source ban is much like any other source ban uh, in yeah. terms of its dynamics in the marketplace. It is different. It has different market dynamics to diamond rings, for example. So you can extrapolate the price elasticity constant calculated for that or a subset of things. They probably don't agree with it. They only found one of them that represent kitchenware um, and then can then use that, right? And then so 
by sweeping that range, they can then say, okay, we price it here because this is volume times uh, margin or however you want to, whatever you're maximizing revenue or profit. This is the point that gives us the most margin. Set the price there. Off you go. Um, and you can only do that if you have a pricing tool in place to enable you to do that on a mass scale. Because we've spoken previously as well about, you know, is price elasticity a dark art? It seems like it's aspirational for companies. But the reason that it's generally so terrible to use it is because businesses haven't changed their price often enough to be able to, to make, have a sensible output from it. So therefore what Amazon are basically doing is they're changing the price so much so that they can have a big enough data set to then reinforce their algorithms for when they do work out what the best price is. And then they know at any given point, this, if we change the price here, this is what the volume is going to be. And therefore, to come back to the paddleboard, they know if they change the price at Christmas, they know what the, the sale through is going to be on paddleboards. Yeah. That's why the price is changing so much. And the other thing that you said that is key is that actually people struggle with pricing and it's because their data quality is not high enough. And, um, and then not also, I think there's an under, often an understanding gap as well in that like it's, um, it, 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 it's a complex thing and optimization is a complex thing and understanding that sacrificing on, on, a, on a range of products to, to pick up over a whole kind of gamut elsewhere. Um, if you're not kind of, a, if you're not okay with big data statistics probability if you don't come from that background it, it, it is difficult to get your head around um so i can understand why some people are resistant to it, especially if so actually they haven't it's why we keep saying fundamentals right get compared to data make sure it's clean because then you can see the difference and then you understand and then you can okay what, what do i add in next use my transactional data okay i clean that i aggregate that um because again there's a whole There's a whole thing like uh, we could we could do why transactional data is crap. It tends to be cleaner because it's often used for accounting, but that accounting often happens outside of where you're doing it, right? So an example is fraudulent activity, right? So you could sell ten of an item, a high ticket item, a pricing algorithm pick up on that, okay? Happy days, and someone's been trying to defraud you, and they're not real sales. So it's not uptake in the marketplace. It's changing in price. Otherwise. It, so you need to get this kind of data quality framework going to really benefit. And I would say from any digitization of your business, this isn't pricing, this is whether you're doing digital marketing. In fact, it's probably more important than digital marketing in a lot of ways because your expenditure on digital marketing is probably a lot higher than your expenditure on pricing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, just as we come up to the, the top of an hour in our world, you're, you're not listening it, listening to it live, but, um, but it might be worth just touching upon some of the other data sets that, that feed into feed into the algorithms that, that Amazon are likely to be using to support their decision making. Now, you know, we can we can make assumptions, but certainly our analysis that we've done across multiple sectors and, and a range of sizes of e-commerce companies actually you get a hell of a lot of way by using your sales history your transactional data to support you to build up those those models to work out what what the sweet sweet spot should be but amazon is also using additional data sets above and beyond that so just just to kind of um 
I am going to have to go a bit quick on quick on these. So so forgive me. You've got the likes of the weather, for example. So why would that why would that be interesting? Well, you know, you're not going to sell many um, many umbrellas when when the sun is shining, right, outside. But when when the when the weather is crap, you know. If you do analysis of umbrellas, they're more than likely to be more expensive during the the winter than than the summer. To give to give you a feel, you know that's a very simple, high level example. But it's just uh, you know just hoping to, to to put that into your mind of you you're overlaying all of these decisions on top of each other, on top of each other, on top of each other, um, and that, that's what that's and what the maths is doing. What's key with those ones are is these become predictive indicators. That's what they're trying to get to, right? So you've got your supply and demand curve. That's fine. You've got your sales history and you've got your competitive data. But that's often. So we talk about competitive data as a lagging indicator. Sales history is a point in time indicator. It tells you the state of the market now. And then you start using things like weather, web traffic, um, conversion, blah, 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 blah. blah. These, tend, these tend to be predictive indicators. So you can predict that surge uh, or that surge in demand, such as seasonality or something becomes popular on Instagram for some unknown reason. This is a bit out of both of our comfort zone, but sure. Because uh, you never know that like... <laughs> We've all got hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram. You, yes, yeah, You can, yeah, you can yeah, announce yeah, your yeah. Instagram handle at the end of the podcast. I, I don't, actually, I deleted it because I, um, it makes me not do my job because I just go on Instagram. So I got rid of it. <laughs> now, now, now he tells me. He tells yeah, me in a live, hey, live recording. All these things that you're trying to do is kind of work out the demand for something before before that demand actually kicks in, because obviously you can react to the market, great. If you can start driving the market, great. Then if you can be reactive to consumer demand, this is this is where they where you're going with the weather, um, web traffic, search terms, blah 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 blah. This is where you really win because then you're actually able to get ahead of the curve and save your price. Absolutely. It's it's getting to that reactive reactive stage because if you know that if I have this much traffic on my website, this much traffic looking at that product, and you know what the conversion rate will be, that's when you can start to start to do fantastic price tests of changing the price and work out right the dissection of my web traffic's this, the weather's this, if my price is this, what does then the conversion rate look like? But if you're doing that on one product, if you or I are managing that and are waiting, it's going to take us a hell of a long time. Okay, so we've got a, we've got a, unless, unless, unless you're only selling one product and it's a million quid a million quid a time, yeah, you sell one of those, one of those. Change your price every Monday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> every Monday, push the price up by by one quid. But if you're doing it on a on a mass scale, if you're changing prices regularly, I mean, I our our studies have shown that in terms of frequency, multi times a day, you start to get into laws of diminishing returns. But certainly, if you're overlaying all of these data sets into your algorithm, you're making sensible decisions off the back of that using sound sound logic. Um, you should be shooting for, at the very least, running those rules once a day. You might not be changing the price on all the products every day, but it should be running the rules and the algorithms and the maths once a day. I agree. It is worth saying that that is heavily related to the volume you're selling so amazon will be Agreed. doing hundreds of price changes in a day because the scale at which they operate is right whereas if you're selling and that's why doing it multiple times a day for them makes sense yeah. doesn't it yeah whereas if you're a million pound revenue company you're, you're physically not going to have enough enough 
uh, enough data. I mean, to a certain extent, I would challenge if you're a 50 million revenue company, again, if you're going to have enough data, it depends how, what your sales volumes are like and, and what your well, average I, order size is. I would is. guess that Amazon are over-optimizing. Just, just I, yeah. I think that, I think it, it becomes, yeah, diminishing returns after a point. Because it's not like, it's not like you're trading in the stock market, right? And actually you're making money on, on slight, like, you've got a singular relationship with buyer and consumer. You don't have other people interacting in that transaction. So it's that intraday stuff for me and the way consumer buying cycles have, I mean, it's a whole other debate, but it, it's just, what, it feels like you're more likely to annoy someone and stop them buying if you're changing too often than, than otherwise. If you control the marketplace, honestly, you can do what you want. And and with that, <laughs> uh, shall shall we end? Should we, should we yeah. summarise what we've what we've covered? So, um, so really, we we started by saying that Amazon are making data driven decisions, and that if you don't remember anything from what we've spoken about today, that should be what you what you hang your hat on. There are a number of ways that you can you, you can get lots of tools to support you with that. From a pricing perspective, Black Curve itself, shameless plug, we help businesses automate their pricing decisions, and we've done a lot of the a lot of the maths, a lot of the analysis to, to give you the algorithms which enable you to make uh, make smart pricing decisions using your competitor data, using your sales history, using your stock levels, and more. Okay, um, you can you can start small and grow with it. So don't go 100 miles an hour straight away. But fundamentally, Amazon, if you want to price like Amazon, they're not just using competitor data. They're using multiple data sets. They've, they've applied math to it and they've automated it to make decisions at scale. Okay, uh, is that a good summary, Rob? Do you reckon? Anything more to add? No, no, I'll, I like I'll take the yeah and I'll take the yeah and a shrug and and, uh, and we'll end it there. Well, thank you very much, everybody. This is e-commerce matters. We are Black Curve. We help e-commerce businesses make pricing decisions. Today, we've been tackling the question how to price like Amazon. We'll see you next time. Take care.